When we think about improving the healthcare system, it's one thing for us to identify a problem that needs to be solved, and that's at the start of the process. And then there's at the end, on the other end of the process, there's this execution and implementation phase, which is tricky, don't get me wrong, but it's actionable and it's measurable and definable. Now there's this messy middle part, which is at the heart of it all. And that's really hard. It's got all of the unknowns and needs the thought provocations and the reflections and the different perspectives to form new solutions. And this messy middle part, it takes a lot of time. And to do it all well, you need different perspectives. And sometimes you need a different environment. So this week, I'm bringing you this episode of the Talking Health Tech podcast from Curiosity Camp with the Digital Health CRC here in Crackenback, New South Wales. So the format of Curiosity Camp is that all the participants are split into different groups called tribes, and each tribe has a leader. And each tribe are working for the week on different challenges. And these participants are a good mix of digital health researchers, technology vendors, consumer representatives, and clinicians. All the different stakeholders that you need to build evidence-based approaches to address some of the trickiest problems in healthcare. Now, if you didn't know, the Digital Health CRC invests in research and development to support the growth of a strong digital health industry, improve patient outcomes and experience, and deliver sustainable healthcare solutions. A core focus for the Digital Health CRC is around education and capacity building to support the next generation of emerging health leaders and deliver new and innovative learning opportunities for the sector. So in this episode, I'm speaking to some of the tribe leaders about the work they're doing in their group and why and what outcomes they hope to see that'll live on beyond the time that we have here at Curiosity Camp. You'll hear some of the conversations I had in this episode and the one coming next. So make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast player or over on YouTube so you can be the first to hear the next episode when it comes out. Collaboration starts with a conversation team health tech. Let's make it happen. This is Talking Health Tech with me, Peter Birch, featuring content and community about technology in healthcare. Jade, it's been it's been a little bit since you've been on the pod. I thought it was only a couple of weeks ago, but maybe it's been longer. But the, for those that are keen to learn a bit more about what you do, they can listen to a bit of a longer version before. But remind us who you are and what you do. So I'm Jade Barclay. I am finishing up my PhD in medicine at the Uni of Sydney. I am up to my eyeballs in my thesis at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And because this is my group, my thesis and my tribe here at Curiosity Camp are looking at basically similar problems. Yeah, right. Like the problem of multimorbidity being everywhere in real life, everywhere in clinic, but being excluded from medical research. And what are the implications of that? And yeah. how can we have a system that better serves society because we have research and guidelines and the duration of doctor appointments and all the things set up to more to reflect the actual mm. dy medical dynamics of real people in the system. Yeah, got you. Yes. Yeah? So, and yeah, right. So I think about 
the purpose of doing a clinical trial is to then validate a particular intervention, which is then going to be let loose into the public, into the wild, into to everyone. But the, the clinical trial is, uh, or, or any kind of research, is required to determine if it's effective or if it's safe or a bunch of other outcomes. And for, for you to do a, and as I understand, for you to do a clinical trial or any kind of research, you've got to get your, your, your participants. But then that, that recruitment process for participants, they need to, you know, maybe they've got a particular health issue and that's what you're researching, mm-hmm. but they can't have anything else and they've got to look like this and they've got to smell like this and their favourite colour mm-hmm. needs to be blue and the, all of that. Is that the kind of issue that we're, we're yeah. talking about? And, like, if, if you're researching a particular thing and you're excluding people who have had a recent surgery, who have ever had cancer, who mm. have an autoimmune condition, who have a mental health condition. Like, if the people who have the condition that you're studying, if 80%, 90% of those people have the multimorbidities that are being excluded, mm. how can that research be generalised mm. to the actual clinical population? Yeah. Right? Like, if 90% of the people, for whatever you're studying, have an autoimmune condition then an autoimmune condition should be included as something that people can have in the research sample, Mm. right? And at the moment, having a research sample that reflects the clinical reality is not a requirement and way, way too often, um, like some of the others in here, they've been trying to do their studies and all of the people that they thought could be in it have been excluded and so yeah. it's they're calling them outliers mm. when if they're they may be an outlier in that arbitrary definition mm. that has been used for research but that definition itself is excluding the people that like the people in the research sample do not look like feel like smell like mm. they, they don't mm. They're not the same as the people who are out in the real world. Yeah. So it's not just my idea. Lots of people have been saying, look, we need to have um, clinical reality represented in our clinical research samples. But in Australia, we don't even need to have gender appropriately represented in our clinical research samples. Mm. And globally... Gender is not even represented in phase one trials for anything in the cell cultures, in the mice or in the men, right? Phase one is like, does it have any effect at all? And there are plenty of things that have an effect in female cells that don't, or intersex cells that don't have an effect in male cells that never even make it past the phase one trial. Mm -hmm. So the whole population is missing out on that stuff. Because apparently if you test it on male cell cultures, then that applies to everybody. Yeah. But when we've done the other, actually there's some things that have zero effect at all. Yeah. And I don't do do RCTs. That's not my thing. Yeah. Right? So I'm I'm not testing drugs and all that kind of stuff. I've wanted to get what is the actual patient experience and get what are the economic impacts, what... How long is the diagnostic delay? Mm. What are the experiences that people are really having so that we can have that inform our future research? 
And I've specifically designed my studies so that the most severely affected people and the ones that are usually excluded from research are the ones that I've put first. So I've made it before everybody was on Zoom, was like all of my um, data collection and everything, prioritise people with mobility restrictions, prioritise people that were most severely affected or disabled by the conditions because they're the ones that are missing from the data sets and the decision-making and they're the ones that we need to have because they're the ones that are least represented Mm. by the treatments and solutions that we get and often actively harmed and sometimes killed by treatments that were deemed safe by the processes that we currently have in place that exclude them. Got you, got you. And yeah, like, so I guess if you're purely looking at it from a research perspective and here's, I I need to get the cleanest and and tidiest possible data set and remove the outliers as the terminology goes so that then at the end, I've got this neat little package that I can then say, I've done my research. But Mm. then I guess if we can take, and I guess this is what what Curiosity Camp has been all about. It's like looking over the next the next hurdle, the other side of the fence or whatever the analogy is of um, you do your element here, but then what happens to the research that you do? It goes out into the wild, into the general public, and that's not representative of the research that you've just done. So. Yeah. The the mentality from a physics lab or a chemistry lab where you want to remove confounders mm-hmm. has bled over yeah. into uh, medical research and clinical research. And for certain things, that's appropriate, mm. but not for everything. Yeah. And when that when you take that kind of um, approach and apply it to everything, it becomes less and less realistic yeah. and less and less generalizable. Yeah. Right? Like if it's not representative in the first instance, it's not generalizable in the second. So I've got a good understanding of the um, the issues yeah. you're you're attacking. I was addressing, but let's let's attack these issues. <laughs> the um, here at Curiosity Camp with the group, what's the yeah. kind of activities and things that you're doing with the um, uh, tribe participants to address it? Well, it's it's quite cool because we have uh, various different uh, clinical researchers. We have health economists. We have data people. We have implementation science. We've got patients. Like, we've got a really good representative group mm. from different uh, perspectives. And we have... Basically, instead of looking at research change or service change, we've been looking at system change, system level change, Mm. right? And so what are all the key levers and drivers on the one hand that this single disease focus and this exclude reality because it's too messy Mm. um, process on how are systems designed to have a single index thing be the only thing we look at? How are they designed? And then based on how things are designed, how are the things that we do in terms of research and training and the norms and values that are upheld and everything, how, how are the, what are the consequences and the things that we do that are conditional upon the way that things have been designed? Because those two things really feed into each other. And it's like... We're addressing acute issues, things that um, that harm or like injuries or illnesses that will kill people in five days. Mm. And the whole system was designed to understand that and to treat that, and we got really, really good at that. So people don't die from things in five days anymore. Yeah, very rarely. Mm. 
you know, which means we're living with things for 20, 30 years. Right. And we're applying the same system, the same policies, the same legislation, the same funding, the same uh, statistical approaches, Hmm. the same every, like, training and everything. Mm. The whole system is set up to do that and it does it really, really well and it's done it so well that the system itself, in its success, has generated a new problem, which is... We're living for 30, 40, 50 years with multiple ongoing chronic conditions that are not only not recognised in the system, but it's, the system has been designed to not recognise them from the outset and at every step. So, yeah, we've been looking at that. It's fun. Yeah. It's so fun. (laughs) (laughs) And so once we, you know, as, as curiosity camp wraps up in a few days Mm. and we've, we've nutted out some of these issues, Mm -hmm. what happens to it next? What are you hoping happens with the work that you've done here at curiosity camp to then, um, happen next? So we have a couple of things that, uh, are crystallizing as we speak. Mm. The team is very, very busy right now. (laughs) Um, and one is, we're looking at the system-wide impacts of having longer GP appointments, longer primary care appointments, mm. right? What's the economic and health and systemic and equity impacts of that and gathering the research base to be able to support um, advocacy for policy change? Because at the moment, longer appointments are only afforded to those who can pay mm-hmm. or for those who have managed to get effective um, multiple diagnoses under the short appointment system. And that privileges certain conditions. It privileges uh, conditions that are primarily in older males that are that look like people who end up being in politics, <laughs> just quietly. Um, and having a longer session prior to diagnosis mm. is often needed in order to get a full a full history and to connect the multiple dots that haven't yet been diagnosed, but current MBS codes don't support that. There are pockets of excellence. There are pockets of best practice where things have done, uh, where places do longer appointments. So we have a basis to compare, Hmm. but almost all of the analysis in the system, it looks at the hospital as the unit of analysis, or they look at the patient as the unit of analysis. And we're looking at the GP appointment the GP clinic and the Mm. length of the appointment as the unit of analysis to go, okay, so if we were to compare longer and shorter appointments, what's the real impact on burnout for GPs and staff, on Mm. the health outcomes for patients, on the health outcomes for particular subgroups of patients so we can address that equity problem, um, and on the flow-on and ripple effects for the other parts of the health system as well. So gathering all that together to support, like to basically make a case for, for change for that kind of thing. Cause it's very easy to say, we can't make longer appointments. We don't have time for that, but there's been no real, um, hmm. we don't have time for that is a feeling, <laughs> right? Yeah, that it's a very, very real feeling, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very relatable feeling, but we're uh, backing that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other side is actually getting these pockets of excellence where people are doing different things. And instead of having uh, multiple lone wolves trying to make system-level mm. change, uh, actually 
forming networks and communities of practice to bring all of the skills, the knowledge, the research, the uh, different perspectives and approaches together uh, so that, like that initial policy brief, as a network we can start to collaborate and create some ongoing change and hit some key leverage points in the system at, at times when they're ready to and ripe for change. G'day Dave, how are you going? Good, thanks man. Good, good. Firstly, it's great to be sitting by the water here at Lake Kraken back here at Curiosity Camp. Um, this wasn't where you caught your trout earlier, was it? You were you were somewhere else. Oh, I was just over behind the island yeah, there early in the morning. Still more fishing to be done. But before you do that, I wanted to chat with you a little bit more about um, you. Firstly, you're leading one of the tribes here at the uh, Curiosity Camp. I, I want to understand a little bit more about you and your background. Yeah, sure, Peter. Um, I was an educator, primary school educator, grade three to six. And then I sort of had a bit of a midlife crisis and went to other things and ended up educating our new refugees, people that get humanitarian visas, and come here and uh, become citizens. And uh, that was a dream job until I was bar- uh, burnt badly at a barbecue. I got 33% burns and uh, I ended up having nine skin grafts, a 35-day ho- stay in hospital with 10 days in ICU in an induced coma. And then two years of rehabilitation wearing compression suits and I did my own um, research project where I made videos of how to look after compression garments and took them back into outpatients to real burns patients and encouraged them to wear the suits and have a higher compliance rate, mainly amongst men. Yeah, right. I just, I'm just reflecting on that thought about going to a barbecue. The, the last thing on your mind is the total reframe of what the rest of your life is going to be like. That's just a, a big shift. That's um, and but something that is. It's obviously unique to your situation, but also something that a lot of people have all the time. So I guess being able to understand that consumer point of view is going to be critical. Yeah, reflecting on that, it changed my life in many more ways than I thought it would. Up until then, I was cruising and uh, cruising in life and sort of I wasn't putting full effort in everything I do because I learned that every day is a wonderful gift Mm. and every day is an opportunity. If you're not putting your best in to help, others and to contribute then you're just sitting back and taking and and i think we all and particularly men need to realize that life's not all about what you can get but what you can put back and how you can help and it's okay to have a change and it's okay to change your diet it's okay to change your finances and your and your career and everything else and start down a new pathway and i'm glad i have and a lot of my life is in better shape because of that Amazing. That's an inspiring message to, to start off. So it's great to have your perspectives here at the camp. But tell me a little bit more then about like, so what's been keeping you busy? You mentioned there's the, the, the work you do with the compression garments and a little bit around research. Unpack so, that a little bit. So I got involved with Burns Life and then I got involved with the Burns uh, conferences that are run every year in Australia by, by consumers. I got involved with the hospital boards at uh, the Royal Brisbane, Stars and Metro North. Um, I'm involved with boards to do with Standard 2, Standard 4 and Standard 5 there. I go to a lot of events and speak. Um, I've got a particular interest in nutrition and the pharmacy side. They're uh, an interesting two to go together. And I'm on the Standard 5 side, I've got a lot of interest in comprehensive care. And I'm on a lot of research applications. And a few of those applications have got through. And I'm really enjoying learning more about the research process, which is really what brought me 
head of the camp. Yeah, right. You're bringing that consumer perspective to the camp. I think you're the only tribe leader that that is wearing that hat wholly and solely, right? Yeah, I uh, I was involved with a project uh, to do with AI and sepsis and early deterioration mm-hmm. uh, with a professor from Queensland Uni, Professor Claire Sullivan, and mm-hmm. and uh, I was doing a pitch to all the other consumers in that project, telling them about uh, AI and digital health and and how we should be part of that conversation and part of the co-design from the ground up. And they asked me to do a pitch for the digital health um, CRC camp here. So I thought, what can I do it on? I'm already in a wonderful project to do with uh, patient flows. I thought, isn't there a digital side to that that we can look at? So I looked at a whole lot of areas where we could examine the data that we've got in hospitals to see how we could do a lot better with the resources we've got but with a d- digital slant to it. Well, that's what we talk about a lot on the podcast, I think, from a, from a um, industry, so it's a vendor point of view, like I said, technician's point of view, or a technologist's point of view, I should say. Uh, you, can, you can go in with a particular solution in mind and be a little bit blind to the problem, thinking about it, if, you know, a particular technology that you want to ram into a healthcare system and see how that's going to fit. Yeah, but even from a clinician's point of view, you come with, you know, your own preconceptions around what the workflow is and how that's going to impact you as a clinician and the, and the broader flow. So often we forget to involve the consumer from the start. It's usually that last little bit where it's like, oh, hey, by the way, what you know, this is what it's going to be. Um, so having a consumer-led um, innovation here at the camp, it's... Um, it's what we need, but it's, it's, I guess if it was easy to do, we would have done it a lot by now. We've got to know what the problem is first. Yeah. Isolate the problem. And not just a local problem. It's got to be a problem that's going to be, uh, that's, that's everywhere. And so that whatever solutions we design are designed not just for one hospital or a little area, but that will go nationally. That can be applied to different areas of a hospital. So, you know, what works in cancer? Does it work in mums and bubs? Does it work in the burns ward or whatever? Mm. So uh, when we're looking at knowledge that's going to increase patient flow, whether it be that team that's working so well together, what is working well out there now and how can digital aspects help that so that we're not, we're not just say, so let's make an app about this, but we are truly identify the problems and we uh, then co-design from the ground up with all the stakeholders at the table, mm. right from when we frame the question. Because sometimes, from a consumer perspective, you know, the, people bring me in at a certain part of the journey, and I'm, I'm saying, you know what, I'm, I'm a bit concerned about your question in the first place. Yeah, right. Should it have been this or that? Mm. And so there should be a collaboration right from the get-go that, that we are designing a solution that has not only the problem, properly identifying the problems, but getting all the relevant stakeholders to tell us why this solution is going to work or not going to work. Mm. You know, I listened to, to what you said there and I totally agree, but you, you're using a lot of the the lingo and the jargon that we use in the space, right? The, the co-design together and the multiple stakeholders and the, what was the patient flow and all of this. And I guess, is it that, you know, you, you've you need to be able to talk the talk to be able to come through the process? Or like, how do you Look, think about that? I'm a, I'm a bit of a believer in clinicians moving towards consumers and consumers taking the responsibility to move 
towards clinicians. So mm. we meet in the middle. Yeah. When you've got two language sets, we need an interpreter. Mm. And, and the interpreter for us is each understanding a little bit of each other's language. Mm. So if you get someone green into the research field, they come along to a research meeting, they won't know what they're talking about. They won't know what they're saying because they're using research language. And I think there is a place for consumers to learn a bit of that language. And then once the consumers learn something, they can go out and gather uh, through focus groups or something like that, gather uh, a whole lot of consumers and bring to them the questions that have come from the one or two consumers and the research team, go out, put those questions to them, gather in the data that we need and bring that back into the co-design process mm. rather than putting someone in straight who's, you know, maybe it's to do with something to do with the liver or the kidneys and you bring someone who's had that experience Instead of just one or two of those, we can go to a focus group and get a wider perspective fairly quickly with the actual questions that the researchers want to know about lived experience. Yeah, right. I think I think I get you with like, so it's good getting a consumer perspective, but if you're just getting one perspective, Very it's narrow. not representative of the, uh, the, the total skill set. And, and so I think about then here at Curiosity Camp, we were talking a little bit before, some, some um, tribes have got a very particular outcome in mind or here's an application of a technology that we're going to just apply our research and bring the industry to. Your tribe's a little bit different, a little bit open? Yes, we've got, we've got a group that are working on factors that reduce the number of people coming to ED when you get a lot of presentations that really aren't going to, that could be solved outside of the hospital setting. So it could be done at a local surgery or somewhere else. So they're working on that, which is a bit specific. But the main team's working on uh, some questions to do with where do we, what, what knowledge makes up a really good team that's able to get the patient through the health process right through to discharge? And what, are they, what bodies of knowledge are those teams doing right uh, to get the patient there, and how could digital help could digital health work in conjunction with their knowledge to not only help them but to also help other teams uh, get the knowledge that they need to be really good as well mm. and what would you hope that is um, the outcome of you know the, the your tribe in particular coming together? whiteboarding some ideas, brainstorming different perspectives, asking those big questions. What are you hoping some of the outcomes might be on Friday? Well, we want to go on to some research projects, I think, that will be able to drill down deeper into specific areas to find these bodies of knowledge. And we're not just talking about clinical knowledge. We're talking about um, more intrinsic knowledge where somebody knows who to connect, knows where this patient is on their journey. You know, some clinicians can just look at someone or look at their movement and say they're at that stage in this journey. And we want we haven't really isolated some of that knowledge. And we need to get that down so that if that person were taken out of that position, they got sick or uh, they had to move to another state or something, that we could have that knowledge to for a new person coming into onboard. Of course, they'd learn a lot from the team, but. If there were digital solutions that helped them onboard that knowledge and learn faster, then uh, that would help rebuild the team quicker. That is something that we talk about in healthcare a little bit too, is that you know we rely so much on the human-to-human interaction, and that's what's so important about healthcare is the clinician's understanding and relationship often with a 
with a patient, but you know, with, with that strength also comes a lot of risk in terms of you know, it's a single point of accountability. And yes, there are notes and there's care teams, but a lot's banking on certain individuals in that relationship. I'm into having a win-win for everybody. So a win for the clinicians, a win for patients. When we have a multiply disciplinary team, hopefully rather than one clinician on their own trying to make a decision, a diagnosis, if they've got a whole lot of knowledgeable people at the table and then something goes wrong further on down the line, then they've got people to come back to, they don't feel on their own. Uh, and that's a far less stressful situation and they're getting wider input from a, people who have a wider breadth of knowledge. And then that has to be communicated properly to the patient. So the patient has an expectation right from the beginning about when they might be leaving hospital, what's got to be done to get them to that stage, maybe a flow chart of where they are in the process, what tests or procedures have to be done, how long it might take to get over that, uh, what they can do to speed up that process, such as their diet, their movement, their socialisation, all those factors that we know reduces length of stay. It's all about aligning those expectations, right? That's, um, that's absolutely critical. Lastly, thinking about then, you know, for those that might be coming from industry or research, for that matter, anyone working within the healthcare setting, we, talk about, we all talked about how we should involve consumers more in the process. How would you like to see the healthcare industry engage with um, consumers and patients more proactively in solving some of these problems? Right from the beginning, be excited about having consumers on your project. And the next thing is get the right consumers. Mm. So they know how to go out to more consumers and bring in that valuable lived experience information that you want in the project. And get some consumers that are research-minded, that, that do know what a Delphi study is or a, or, a, or a literature study is or those sorts of things so that they can actively participate in the process. And uh, you're excited about that and you're excited about having consumers there all the way along and that'll show up in how much you collaborate with them uh, how much you involve them in the meetings I know when I'm on a project where they just want me for an hour or two to put an input and then that's it mm. I don't even see what happens in the rest of the project but I know when I'm in a project where I'm seeing the outcomes I've been invited to the education I even get to see it working out in the wards and then right at the end when there's a celebration about what happens, we're disseminating the information. Uh, and I see that as one of my primary objectives to be a raving fan for the project, mm. to tell others what we're doing, get them on board, get them delving into the, to a position where they have some ownership in the project. And then when there's a celebration at the end, that's the start of my work because I want to be able to tell others, hey, we've done this, what are we going to, what's our next step? What are we going to do with this information? How are we going to get that out to be used with consumers on a broad scale? And how powerful is that, right? To be able to have at the end of that process an advocate like the, the consumer, you know, speaking at a, for the public, you know, on behalf of the public sometimes uh, on, on how good the solution is. One thing I would caveat, or at least like from my experience, or at least in speaking to a few people, it's, one thing to say that we're, you know, yes, we're going to engage consumers more, but I think there's also, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you need to go in with an expectation of what that involves. And that might mean you've, you've got to listen a lot more. You've got someone involved in the process that's not familiar with the process. If, if, they've, if they've got lived experience with the issue that you're dealing with, 
they might require a lot of extra considerations that'll slow down things or be difficult to like there's all these there's cultural elements as well it's it's easy to say but really hard to do is that am i going out on a on a it's going to cost you time energy and money Mm. and i the only reason i'm here at this camp today is that one particular well two particular guys or one in particular uh, sat me down at the beginning of a patient flow project that I'm involved with and he explained to me for two hours what patient flows really meant to him, what it's not, what it is, allowed me to ask lots of questions, mapped it out, draw, drew it down uh, and uh, on, on paper he showed me various aspects, all of the complexities involved. And, and from that talk I got very excited about it and wanted to be part of his project. And I know that there's not a step he's taking or an email he's sending out to the team that he's not sending to me. They're all, they all come to me. I know what's going on, and I feel included in all aspects of the process. Yeah. And uh, I can't wait for get it fully funded and, and see it running in eight hospitals. So Exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Well, but it does, it is a cost, and you have to treat him like a member of the team. Yeah. For more content and community about technology and healthcare, visit talkinghealthtech.com.